Welcome to Rethink Reality, a podcast for creatives to learn, adapt, and future-proof themselves for the XR revolution. Tech guru Don Allen III has conversations with innovative players in the AR, VR, and XR space. Develop your knowledge with expert advice and get ready to Rethink Reality. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rethink Reality. I want to introduce you to our guest today, Christine Marzano. Uh, a tech entrepreneur, award-winning actress model, combines AI and CGI gaming technology with fashion e-commerce. Christine was born and raised in Brooklyn, then worked as a top fashion model who, who, rocked, uh, who uh, walked in runways in New York, Paris, Milan, London, and appeared in numerous magazines. Uh, I can't pronounce everything, but Christian Dior, is that correct? Is that one of them? Yep, that's, uh, that's one of the brands that I worked <laughs> for pretty extensively. Yay, and, and Balmain and St. Laurent and Gucci and many more. She graduates from Princeton University with a degree in psychology and neuroscience. That's so cool. We're going to talk about this in a lot of depth. I have so many questions. But then takes another curveball. Flash forward a few years. You're working in LA. You're doing voice and motion capture for video games. And then you become obsessed with all this future tech. You start learning everything you possibly can. And then in 2017, you co-founded DNA Block, where you guys create and protect ownership of photorealistic avatars, as well as kind of trying to democratize avatar content creation. We cut to 2020, and you start a new company called Bods, specifically on focusing on bringing avatars and gaming tech into the fashion industry in a palatable way, which is a key part there. Um, so exactly. You, you didn't know how to say Christian Dior, which I think is exactly the point, right? There's so much interest in all of these other spaces, but the majority of the people that are already super talented and working in 3D and, you know, VFX and animation have never, ever dipped a toe into fashion. And why would they, right? I mean, these right. worlds have been so separate for so long. Now people are actually seeing that there can be a lot of overlap and that yes. it can be great for both industries in, in so many different ways. Thank you so much for being here on the show. Welcome, welcome on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I'm so honored that you actually asked me to be a part of it. I, uh, I'm thrilled. I think what you're doing is really amazing. Uh, I mean, that's why... I've been obsessed with your Instagram feed, and I think the fact that you are really taking it upon yourself to educate, just to teach people about how to use these 3D tools and that it's really not as scary as it looks and, and really kind of breaking down those barriers that I think people often feel exist when they're trying to approach 3D or they're approaching animation. They think it's a fairly closed off world. It's siloed in, in the big studios and, and things like that. Whereas actually a lot of people are actually self-taught. Yeah. So many of us are. Yeah. We learn this stuff from YouTube videos, you know? <laughs> exactly. And it's what I think is really kind of amazing about this space is that there are lots of engineers and just incredible 3D artists that have completely taught themselves based on YouTube videos and tutorials from the different software programs that that's really allowing so many different types of people with different ideas and voices to be heard. Uh, we hired someone as a contractor for a short period while at DNA Block who was actually a Syrian refugee that was living in Turkey who had taught himself, you know, 3D. He was an insane artist wow. and we were basically paying him in crypto and all kinds of stuff. But mm -hmm. I thought it was such an amazing story because here was somebody that was 
literally living as a refugee and had found this way to make money with a computer. And it, it was really inspiring, I thought. That is so beautiful and like kind of highlights just like how different this future is going to be that we are accelerating into. The fact that you can teach yourself skills that in the you know in the recent past these these things would be only acquired through going through traditional educational systems and tuitions and now you can get the knowledge that can get you professional work in futuristic jobs all by being self-taught with internet access to YouTube yeah i think it's phenomenal i mean i i did benefit from having a phenomenal university education I paid for it myself, which was with money I had made modeling, um, but nice. it's definitely not cheap to go mm -hmm. to a place like Princeton, although, I, I, to be fair to them, they do have insane financial aid programs and grants for people who do want to go and, and can't afford uh, nice. to go with a traditional, I think they're one of the best uh, in the country, actually, as far as grant financial aid, but that aside, mm -hmm. um, it's becoming easier and easier to really learn skills and skill sets from some of the best people out there online, which I think is, is an incredible opportunity. Yes. And like speaking of like your experience in Princeton, so you studied neuroscience and psychology. That's what you got your degree in, correct? Yep. So how does neuroscience relate to the XR world that you're in? How does it relate to artificial intelligence? Like, how, you know, how do you use neuroscience today? It's actually really interesting. I just had a conversation about a week ago with uh, a classmate of mine from the psychology department at Princeton, who's now getting her PhD at a university in Geneva, specifically in the interaction between tech and human behavior, human decision-making, with a specific focus on things such as chatbots, avatars. So we're actually planning on running a study with them, with bots, to figure out what exactly this is going to look like. Is it going to change the way we interact with our interfaces, the moment we make it look more human? Is it going to change the way our brains work and evolve if we're exposed to these sort of human-like AI and interfaces from the time right. we're little kids? I don't think we know the answers to any of that, but mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what the future looks like in that respect. Yeah, so for those that are listening that aren't familiar with BODS, what is BODS? Who is BODS? I started BODS about three months ago and uh, took some IP with me from DNA Block that was specifically focused on fashion. What we're trying to do there is basically make the customer the model. So our goal is you as the customer can now be the model. You can try on clothing and see if it fits you, make determinations, style it before you check out of an e-commerce site. See, that's, I mean, that's really, that's very futuristic. <laughs> Why should the customer be the model? When you're shopping, you don't want to have to guess how something will fit you. And I think that that's been a big sort of restriction with online apparel shopping is that people feel like they can't try it on themselves. So what do they do? They buy three of, you know, the same garment in three different sizes only to return two because two of them don't actually fit. Women tend to do this more than men, statistically. Men just don't buy at all if they don't think it's going to fit, or they just don't return it, one of the two. <laughs> but um, it, it's actually more that men will not buy at all if they don't think it's going to fit. Women will buy multiple sizes. They'll try things on. 
But at the same time, too, I think as a woman, you're looking at the model who's wearing it on the website and you're basically going, oh my God, am I going to look like that in it? Or she looks nothing like me. How am I supposed to even guesstimate what this will look like on me? Mm. And I think... Brands are doing a better job now of trying to be more inclusive when it comes to their modeling hires. So they're hiring girls of different sizes, different skin tones. But let's be honest, that gets expensive. If you're going to hire seven or eight girls to wear the same garment instead of one, all of a sudden, if you're a new D2C company that's a startup or something like that, that's that becomes, in a way, prohibitively expensive for you. Right. And at the same time you're still not looking at someone who really represents you. Even if she's closer to your size or closer to your your skin tone, Mm -hmm. she's still not you. So you're still having to make that guess and you're still comparing yourself. And I don't know if comparison is always a good thing. I feel like in most Mm -hmm. cases, comparison is not a good thing for body image, mental health, et cetera. So if you see yourself, you're able to make a real determination and you're not forced to compare yourself to someone and it's most likely a retouched image anyway. So I think that there's a lot of benefits in that from a sustainability perspective. All of a sudden, you're not shipping all of this returned apparel back and forth, back and forth for half of it not to even be resold and just to be dumped into a landfill at the end of the day. All that packaging from like trying out three different sizes and you're going to return two of them. There's still like all this packaging that what they had to be used in that process. The packaging, all of the emissions from the trucks that are sending them back and forth. And at the end of the day, like I said, most of the apparel that's returned, if it's returned after the season is over or they can't restock it in time, or let's say it's a bathing suit or some type of undergarment, it can't be resold. So it's literally just dumped into a landfill. As customers, we're all starting to get a bit more aware of sustainability and what shopping fashion, especially fast fashion, means for our environment and how we can make small little changes in our behavior that will benefit the environment and the world that we live in. And I think this is just another way to do that. Well, I mean, that's that's super fascinating. And like, I mean, maybe we could speak a little bit more about sustainability and these technologies. I mean, I recently just mentioned to folks that I find augmented reality to be one of the most sustainable forms of art because as long as you already have a displaying device, you don't need to physically pour paint into a landfill in order to display an art gallery that's in AR. And it's like this whole other nature, like, yes, it's really fun and immersive, but it's also sustainable. Like, there's, you, know, you don't have to take up a lot of space. It can be consumed in lots of different locations. When it comes to fashion, like a fashion avatar, it's important to have it look and be us because then we lessen the guesswork of what size things are and we start lowering the amount of comparisons we do to our body image to others. Exactly. Now, I'm not saying that you need to then take this accurately sized avatar and go use it in other sort of places. And I would love for our avatars to be the ones that you can then take and use other places in the metaverse or in, you know, AR experiences, any extended reality. But that's not to say that you can't change them before you do so. So I'm a big believer that the whole benefit of these extended realities and having an avatar representation is that you really can be whoever or whatever you want to be. 
your look in that space is not dictated by the way you were born and wow. what you look like in reality or what you know where you were born you know there's there's so many things that you can basically overcome and really truly be whatever you want in these digital spaces. So I think for the purpose of clothing try on, it needs to be accurate and it needs to sure. actually reflect you in the real world. But then taking that and taking that on turn, bringing it elsewhere, it can be manipulated to be whatever you want it to be and however you want to be perceived. And I think we're seeing more and more now with millennials, Gen Z, they enjoy having different presentations of themselves depending on what the environment is. And why not allow that and encourage that yeah. in, in a way that's fun and interactive and expressive? I, I think it's how you express yourself and it's, it's how you want others to perceive you. And it's something that you can really be creative with and have fun and, and try new things and experiment. And I think mm. with having avatars that you can try on with, I think a lot of times people are afraid to experiment. They're afraid to buy a size that they think is maybe a size that they wish they weren't or, or things like that. But if you're doing it all online and you're doing it within the comfort of your own home digitally, I think all of a sudden you open up the, the playful and experimental nature that fashion is really meant to have. People will be willing to try on things that they would maybe never have taken into a fitting room in a store, that they would have been embarrassed to see yes. somebody, to have somebody see them with. Or, you know, you talk about now there's all these different gender neutral fashion labels that are popping up and mm. you look at it and you go, okay, that is a t-shirt. But the way one wears it and styles it and how tight it is, how yes. loose fitting it is, how short it is and cropped, how long it is, will determine the expression of that person. So that same t-shirt can be worn yeah. a bazillion different ways and have a different type of expression in each of those instances. And how are you supposed to know what size, quote unquote, you are unless you actually try it on? So if you're being told by the brand, you are a size small based mm -hmm. on your measurements, well, I'm a size small if I want this t-shirt to fit me in a very generic, basic way. But if I want it to be tight and cropped or I want it to be big and baggy, I obviously wouldn't be that size. Right. And that's where I think the visualization layer is really important because for me, fit in fashion is subjective. There are things that definitely do not fit and will not stay on your body. Uh, so there are extremes and there are things that will not close at all on your body. And those probably do not fit. But within the middle part, yes. I think it's, it's really subjective. And you as the customer need to decide fit, not an algorithm or some, you know, sizing label on your clothing that's meant to make you either feel good or bad about yourself. I'm right there with you on that one. I mean, especially like, I mean, you speak to, you know, certain things that you might not want to try on in the real world, but you'd be more than happy to try it on your avatar. And that, and it might actually be something that informs your buying decision. I don't really like uh, putting makeup on myself, but I'll definitely wear it on a filter. My, uh, my girlfriend, she designed some really cool, like makeup uh, for an AR face filter on, for Spark AR. And I try it on, I'm like, whoa. Actually, I like, I like the I way. Great with these eyelashes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a second. I've never, ever in my life 
I've never tried makeup like that before. I would be too scared of. I have certain gender norms that I was trained on. And then, but suddenly when it's this virtual layer, I'm suddenly like, okay, well, that's fine. And then I can share that. And it's different. For some reason, my brain separates it and says, that's okay because it's, it's the digital representation of me. It's not me that's wearing it. It's the virtual me that's wearing it. And that's, that's fine by me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what you asked earlier about neuroscience, AI, XR, I think what we'll learn and what I think will be really interesting is how we perceive these avatars. Do we see them as an extension of ourselves? Do we see them as a version of ourselves, but that there is some separation between our physical self and and that digital version of ourself. And if there is that separation, do, is that what allows us to be more playful, to experiment more? And I think in a way, it it will be that. I hope, I mean, for me, I hope that it will be that. And you know, everyone always asks mm -hmm. about AI and the future and the future of all of these other digital realms and I think if people that are building them starting now which is why I also wanted to be part of it as a woman I didn't see tons of women there are definitely really interesting women working in the 3D digital space but yes. there aren't an overwhelming number of them and right. if you look at how women have been presented in video games to date I wouldn't say that it's the most sort of like female empowering or even accurate uh, depiction of women. It's more what some guys who liked to play video games thought women should look like, which I think is totally cool and fine. But I think that going forward, there should be a lot of different voices in the space. And I'm glad that I can be one of them and that we should have video game characters that look like those traditional women that, you know, I yeah. may even make my avatar look like at some point because it looks so good. And then other ones that look more <laughs> realistic or, you know, are for different purposes. I, I think that there's a lot of space and my, my real hope for this entire space and, and industry is that we get a lot of different voices involved from the beginning because it'll allow for the best experience, I think, going forward. And with AI, the question is always, you know, will it be good for humanity or will it be bad? And I don't think any of us know the answer, but I think that we can help determine whether it's going to be, the next decade is going to be the best or the worst when it comes to all of our AI implementation, how we're using it, all of these new virtual spaces. And totally. I'm, I'm excited to be part of it. I'm also excited that you're <laughs> a part of it because for one is I don't see enough women in tech. And when I see successful women in tech like yourself, it's like it, may, it helps normalize it. And if it's normalized, then we'll see more women in tech that are you know, not scared away of this business. And then we get this whole different diverse perspectives and experiences related to immersive. And all of a sudden you just have like, you just have a more well-rounded experience for everybody. Um, this is an example. Have you heard about the, um, uh, the problem that ran in, uh, you know, in some of those bathrooms, there's like scanners that, uh, that let you know when the water to run, like you put your hand underneath it and then it lets water run. Oh yeah, and it was having difficulty identifying darker skin tones, right? Yes. And this was exactly, I'm happy you already know about this example. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scanners yeah, were, were, they just didn't have a very diverse team. So all the skin that they tested it on, tested it on. was lighter skinned and it worked mm-hmm. fine. They didn't realize that their infrared light did not work very well for darker pigmented skin. And it, yeah, and it still doesn't totally. Like they actually had to like add, they had to adjust their training model and think about what a, a quote crappy product that is that only works for people of a certain like it's supposed to be something everyone should be able to wash their hands in the bathroom but your product is now a worse experience because it was less inclusive exactly i think you're totally right and i think the more people that can be involved in this space from the get-go i mean if you think about Mm -hmm. it when i was looking at fashion stuff three years ago in this space the majority of what you could find in any of these sort of asset stores or anything like that, none of it was quote unquote fashionable. It all looked like video game gear or some like very sexy, you know, version of some sort of latex outfit that you could purchase for an avatar. So when we were looking at clothes by avatar right. three or four years ago, it became something where I went, okay, well, I can either wear this very cool latex outfit, but I don't really know how she could perform interviews in this. Or I can hire somebody to actually make some clothes. And then once you started to look into doing that, it was who has an eye that actually understands fashion or comes from fashion and understands how to make garments that are quote unquote fashionable or things that the the current fashion industry would be drawn to. And now what I think is really interesting is during COVID, because all of these fashion universities, all of these design schools, everyone has been forced to do their graduation shows digitally. Wow. So all of a sudden, you have this entire generation of fashion graduates who I think for a very long time have shied away from going into these digital tools and using them because the fashion industry didn't really embrace them necessarily either. So it didn't help you or hurt you get a job. Now they're all learning how to do them. And I truly believe that to get a job in fashion going forward, you will need facility with these 3D tools, whether they're putting them in the beginning parts of their pipeline and production, you have things like Browseware, Clothe3D, Tukatech, all of these different softwares where you can take patterns and create them into 3D garments, which then you can use with your production pipeline. I mean, I think we talked about sustainability earlier, but there's tons of sustainability issues on that end of the production of garments, the sampling of garments that will all be helped with 3D as well. And I think having COVID happen and having all of these graduation shows be digital really opened up this entire 3D world to these people that do have these fashion skills and do have these design skills that I think now you will begin to see so much more really great 3D fashion product, which is what I was hoping for and banking on. And it came earlier Yay. than I actually thought it would. Go so Christine. that's also amazing. Yes. I thought it was still going to be a few more years until we got a bunch of people on board with the 3D pipelines. But I have to say, I think COVID accelerated mm-hmm. that acceptance and a lot more brands are now looking into how they can implement 3D into their pipelines, which I think is great for everyone. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people listening are creatives that are trying to get into this space. And so let's say you are a fashion grad. You're, you're graduating with fashion. You, this is what you want to work on and you want to be future proof. 
what are some of those 3D needed tools that you might want to recommend to a creative here that wants to bring their fashion and have it be ready for that digital world? Oh, I think the more knowledge that you can have of the software programs, like I said, Browseware, Clo3D, Marvelous Designer. If you are able to create really incredible garments within those softwares, I think you will be indispensable for brands and for future hiring. You heard, you're hearing it from the pro themselves. Get into but these also tools. Like Adobe Substance. I mean, all of the trims and everything else. If you really have a great eye and you're already an artist, getting in there and really making the the um, embellishments on the fabrics and things are really what will set you apart from other people who are trying to do clothing. And it will also set you apart when it comes to a large brand looking to make hires going, wow, that garment looks so incredible, so insanely real that I can't even tell the difference between that and the garment that we have hanging on the shelf. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, once you start to, you know, struggle to distinguish between reality and, you know, digital, I mean, then we, when then we start talking about psychology at that point. <laughs> well, then, I think for right now, you have the ability to make things that you can put on these websites, right? You yes. can basically replace photo shoots, everything else with all these 3D garments, accessories, everything really, and have them look exactly like it. But I think once you get into these digital spaces, they don't even need to necessarily look exactly like the real world items anymore here you can make them fantastical you can have so many you can have so much more fun and you can put so many more additions that maybe you wouldn't have as feasible in the real world but you you can rock them in these digital worlds and i'm excited to see that mm. space take off as well yes i was curious by any chance did you um see the digital fashion show in uh, uh i think anifa muvamba anifa? Yep. Is, yes. What did you, um, can you tell us, or do you know anything about that? Did you watch any of it or see any of it? So there's been a ton of different people that have tried to put on virtual fashion shows. Um, and what I think Anifa did that was really interesting was in a lot of cases, they just don't look, they don't look real. They don't look chic. And I think part of the problem from, and I work in avatars, so maybe I'm a bit more critical, was that the avatars always looked a bit subpar, a bit plastic, a bit fake looking. And therefore, it took a lot away from the experience. What I really liked about what she did when she presented that collection digitally was that she didn't actually use avatars. She used the sort of outline mm -hmm. of a body within those pieces of clothing. So you didn't see a face, you didn't see a body, but the clothing was draped on a body, an invisible body, and it moved and walked as if it was on this invisible body. And I think what that did was it not only kept people focused on the clothing, which is what a brand wants at the end of the day, right? but it also, it didn't distract people with it being, oh, this is digital because that avatar looks weird and I can't get into this and this is not real clothing. It really focused you on the clothing. The clothing looked impeccable. You weren't taken out of the experience by the Uncanny Valley or, or anything mm -hmm. like that. And at the same time, it's kind of what I was saying earlier is 
you weren't comparing yourself to any of those models that were walking down the runway because they were all invisible. <laughs> so you could imagine yourself in one of those garments very easily because it was literally an invisible person walking down the runway. So I thought she was extremely innovative in making that decision. And I think it was because she had an eye for fashion. I think a lot of times people right. who come from the tech side want to show off all of their tech and the tech skills. And I think that that's fantastic. And avatar technology, 3D technology has come so far. And it's so amazing when you compare it to what you could do only a few years ago, especially if you're trying to use consumer hardware or anything like that. But when you're looking at it from the fashion perspective, you still have to keep in mind what are people going to think is fashionable? Right. What are they going to be able to relate to? What is somebody who has never heard of 3D, looked at something in 3D, thought about 3D or you know, anything like that? What are they going to think about it? Is it going to be easy for them to understand? And I think my like superpower or what I find to be my power alley in this whole thing is being that bridge and that translation between the fashion world and the 3D world. Having the discussions with the engineers who don't know anything about fashion, but being able to explain to them in a way that they understand, in a way that makes sense to them, what I need in order to make it, like I said earlier, palatable to yes. those that are in fashion or exciting to those that are in fashion or something that doesn't seem like a clunky tech add-on to those in fashion. Because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. why do people get into fashion? They want to be surrounded by things that are beautiful, things that are aspirational, things that are, you know, luxury. Not something that kind of looks like it's a weird <laughs> tech experiment, which although it could be the highest end technology, uh -huh. and from a technical perspective, you're doing cutting edge work, but it doesn't always translate the, to the other side that that's what that is. So I think finding that happy medium where you're realizing what budgets are and like where the money should be spent and where it doesn't need to be spent in order to get that end product that everyone can understand and feel good about is um, a skill set that I think I've developed over the past few years and one that I think mm -hmm. is very rare at this moment in time. Will it be rare going forward? Probably not. But I think for hmm. right now, there's not that many people who have spent this much time working in the fashion industry and in the 3D world in the way that, that I have. So I think that I can bring this mixed mash experience to the world in a really unique and informative way. Speaking of your superpower of translating between the 3D tech and the fashion world, Maybe I understand. Take that back. Oh. I don't know if it's actually a superpower. But, I think uh, it is because you you know if you're able to translate between these things, it can it, you you make for new experiences that aren't possible. And one thing I've noticed, and you've had a lot of experience, not only uh, you know using motion capture, but actually doing motion capture. Um, can you mm -hmm. share any little bit about what, what was it like doing motion capture for video games? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was trained as a dancer as a child and grew up dancing and everything else. So I think I have a lot of body awareness as well as motion capture was fascinating because here I was able to capture my actual motion and then watch it put onto another character, but still being able to discern, wow, that's me. That's how I 
move. And it was actually really funny. We did a test. I was the first avatar that we made at DNA Block, and we ran all of our tests on my avatar, and it was it was quite fun to be the guinea pig. But <laughs> you, you saw a lot of things go wrong as well in all of oh, those God. tests. But you learn a lot from it. Um, and... I remember we put my motion capture from a runway walk onto oh my, my own God. avatar. And my sister texted me and said, wow, Chris, that is you. That's how you walk. That's your hand. That's the way your hand moves. <laughs> and the fact that my sister, oh who my you know has grown up with me and has yes. seen me walk a million times and has probably watched a ton of fashion show videos that I had been in throughout the years, was mm -hmm. able to know that that wasn't some Mixamo animation that we had put onto that character, <laughs> that it was actually my walk, was really interesting. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I... Part of what got me interested in this whole space was wondering who owned that. I began right. to realize not question. only is this the future, but who owns this? Does the production company own this? This is literally my essence in a way. Yes. You're using my voice. You're using my movement down to the movement of my fingers oh my that God. are yeah. recognizable as me. So going forward, who owns that and, and how is it going to be used? And it became a question that we brought up a lot in the first company. How do you protect your digital likeness? How do you make sure that you own it and that you're licensing it out for use rather than somebody else owning it and you having to make multiples of them and everyone wow. owning a bit of you. And I think it's a question that was a little bit too early for when we had started the conversation. Mm -hmm. People weren't ready to have it yet, but I think it's something that is definitely being pushed to the forefront now as all of these artists digitize themselves in order to put out concerts and everything else. The, I believe the question will become... Wow. Who, who owns this? Do I own it? And how do I continue to use it, monetize it, etc.? Yeah. What do you think it should be? Like, like if we put laws aside, um, when it comes to your avatar and the motion data and the likeness. The person whose likeness it, it's based off should own that data and then they should license it. So they should be paid for whenever it's used. And it. I think it's the same as... Now, if someone uses your likeness for something and is paid for it, you are entitled to be paid for that as well. They are not legally allowed to use your likeness for something unless you've agreed to that. And I think yes. digital likeness is going to be the same thing. It's probably going to be a lot more difficult to monitor, which is why there are tons of mm -hmm. talk about blockchain protection and things like that, which I think could be very interesting going forward. People are starting now to be a bit more concerned about their data and how their data is used. And I always thought while doing all of this, the moment your data looks like you and talks like you and walks like you, <laughs> all of a sudden your data means more to you. It, wow. All of a sudden your data is not something that's, you know, your bank account information is very important to you. Do not get me wrong. But right. there's something about it that doesn't affect you in the same visceral way as seeing yourself, seeing your movement, hearing your voice. And I think the moment that that starts to happen and people mm -hmm. realize that that's their data, they will probably be a bit more proactive about trying to protect it as well. 
I wonder if everybody having their own avatar would actually just make everyone more careful with their data. I think that that's an absolute possibility. I would hope that that would be. Where they're like, well, this is my, you know, it looks like me, sounds like me, walks like me. I care about my data now. (laughs) Yeah. I think it is the thing that will be the tipping point. It's your... It's your data that you as a human can relate to. I think data for humans is still an abstract concept, even if right. it is something as important as your banking information. It's still quite abstract. Oh, they know these numbers and things about me. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think when it actually looks like you, our brains, our human brains are wired to recognize faces, recognize yes. movement. Recognize, I mean, that is why we get the uncanny valley and things like that, because we are so fine-tuned to recognize human faces and movement and to yes. detect emotion from a face that, yes, I think it will, it will definitely affect us in a way more visceral way than our abstract data is currently making us feel when it's out there yeah. being bought by every single company in the world. I had some friends that were hired to do motion capture for some of the... Um, uh, EA sports games, some of their like basketball games, they did some of the stunts and some of that motion work. But they, um, but since they reused the data after more than one game, they didn't get paid like per every time that was used. They only got paid a one-time stop kind of thing for when they did the initial motion capture. And then, every, but the contract they signed basically meant they didn't own that motion data anymore. EA owned that motion data. So to that note, like I can understand the likeness of your avatar wanting to have ownership of that. But do you ever think it would be strange if a company wanted, like, would, do you think the user should be able to license out their motion data? Like, those arm movements are my arm movements. That's how my arm swings when it walks. And you, you need Absolutely. my permission to use my arm swing because that, mm-hmm. that is my data that comes from my physical body. Absolutely. I think you should be able to license out all of those aspects of yourself because they are, in essence, what makes you you. If you saw, for instance, Mm -hmm. the Hanifa models, which were invisible, but they were using your motion capture, you would still be able to recognize that it was you. Such a good point when you put it that way. I'm literally looking at that on my uh, screen right now as we're talking. So I think it's... That is an essence. It is a fingerprint of you. And so, yeah, therefore, you you should be able to own it. That's... That's my take on it, and I think Yay. well going forward. The more interesting they would, they will want these virtual experiences to be. The more human they're going to have to make them. So you can get a lot of mocap generated using AI. I would imagine going mm-hmm. forward, but they're not going to be as nuanced. They're going to be cleaner. There's going. I mean. Who knows, actually. But I think, <laughs> as I said that, I'm like, you know, actually, maybe they won't be. Maybe they'll be able to train it to make it nuanced so that, but... Um, mm-hmm. But for now... For now, yes. You should be able to do your own, uh, your own motion capture. But the whole motion capture process, for people who haven't done it before, is fascinating. You're on this big stage, you're wearing the suit, and you have all of the, the cameras basically capturing every single motion, even you're wearing gloves that are capturing finger. We did a a test Mm -hmm. for trying to create avatars that could do sign language. 
Oh my God, that's and beautiful and complicated. <laughs> yes. Well, so we were not going to be the right people to do it, but we just wanted to see if it was a possibility with the avatars that we were building. Obviously, we would have needed to bring in people who were specialists in that area. But my father has been a teacher, an educator for his whole life in special education. And so it's always been something that's been a very big part of my and my sister's lives is making sure that things are accessible and that whatever you make, whatever you build, you should always think about whether or not they're accessible and whether or not yes. people of different, uh, of different sorts of abilities can actually use them. And so when we were testing out the mocap for hands, we had a deaf actress come in and do all of this sign language motion capture. And wow. it was phenomenal to watch. You basically saw all of this captured and the way that she used her hands, you know, sign language, language is not just some robot kind of moving its hand in a specific way. There's right. body movement, there's facial movement. And, and we were capturing all of this in hopes to be able to have sign language avatars of different celebrities, different types of things like that, wow. allowing their content to be more easily and readily available to people that use sign language as a, a method of communication. Yes. And I think with VODs, it's kind of what I'm excited about as well, too. It's like people of any ability can try on clothes. So I think that there's also something really amazing about, about that and about the idea that, you know, maybe if you are in a wheelchair or something like that, and you, you would have difficulty in a fitting room or you don't want to spend that much time in one, if you could try it on digitally and then in essence, we can have you sit down in a chair so you could see yes. your avatar, so you can see what it looks like sitting down if that is how you spend most of your time, etc. How cool is that? And how great of an experience is that rather than a dreadful one where you're going, oh man, I don't know if I really want to do that today. Wow. See, that's like the kind of insight that I never, I've never thought of. And of like using motion capture to make fashion just an accessible experience because, yeah, maybe you're, maybe you're in a situation where you can't be as physically mobile, but you still want to be wearing clothes that make you feel good and express yourself. So then using motion capture to kind of assist with that process, that's really beautiful. I, I never, I never that's, thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. There's tons of business applications, but allowing accessibility and accessibility using tech, I think is yeah. something like my dad has always said that, that you should always think about. What, whatever got you interested in digital fashion? As a, as a model, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of got to see the change in fashion. I started and it was film cameras. Okay. Which seems like it was forever ago, but I'm not that old. Mm -hmm. uh, but all of the, all the top photographers and everybody else, even though digital cameras were starting, they were all still only using film. Film was best. You know, nobody worth their salt in the photography game was going to use a digital camera. So you right. would show up on these photo shoots and they would take photos of you using film, using large format cameras, everything yes. else. Not to mention, those photos were going to be used in printed magazines. You were not going to see those things online because that was considered low grade, low class. You weren't going to be in an online publication. That was, you know, 
No way. You wanted wow. to be in the actual printed publication. Yes, the authority. And exactly. And I re- as it went along, I remember seeing, I did, I did do one photo shoot that was going to be for a zine, a z- you know, that's what they were called, an online magazine. And I remember my agent saying to me, well, don't worry, but at least we'll be able to use some of the photos. They're really cool. And basically saying, this is not going to help your career that much, but the photos will be great, right? (laughs) Then you cut to now where nobody is consuming anything really in actual printed magazines. Everything is online. All fashion is being consumed, whether it's through social media applications or, you know, websites, e-com, everything else. Everyone worth anything in photography is shooting digitally. Not to mention, people are now shooting their own content on their phones that they carry around in their pocket that looks, you know, decent enough to be published in other places. So just seeing that trajectory from the time I started to now, what is that next step? The next step is obviously digital fashion. What do people use Instagram for? I think I read a stat at some point that about 80% of what is sold off of Instagram and visually is actually fashion and apparel. What? And Oh my God, I had no idea it was that high. Yeah, and if you can look at that and start to go, okay, well, what if we start doing digital fashion? And I, I, I just think it is the, the next step. It makes sense. And there's already people dipping their toes in it. There are people that are creating digital lines. Fashion has also started to see the size of the market that exists in gaming. (laughs) So after they saw how well attended the Marshmallow concert was in Fortnite, all of a sudden they started to go, wait a second, I I think that there's money to be made here. And how much money do people pay for skins in Fortnite? (laughs) What? People pay an average of $85. You know, I think it was something like 60% of Fortnite users pay $85 a year on skins and things. So now fashion is all of a sudden looking at gaming, whereas before (laughs) the two things were like oil and water. They had nothing to do with one another. And now I think that they're seeing a lot of opportunity for overlap. And I think that that's great. I think why not have more fashion influence in gaming and more gaming influence in, in fashion just to make both of the products more interesting and totally. and uh, I mean, speaking to that, I mean, I, I I play Fortnite pretty regularly with my little cousins. It's how we stay in touch, and I know a lot about them through it. And uh, nice. I remember when we first started playing Fortnite together. Both of them made a commitment that didn't last, saying. Fortnite skins are stupid. They would never waste their money on something like that. Both of them said that. And I'm like, okay, if you say so. I swear maybe about one and a half months after them playing it regularly, they had both spent about $55. And how they got that money was they worked extra time as coaches for um, for being referees. Sorry, they were, they were referees on their weekends so that they could make the money to buy skins on Fortnite. <laughs> And I was like, this is, I'm like, that's, you know, we're seeing a glimpse of what the future is. You know, when, when that's the, these guys both said they weren't going to do it. And they're both now working on their weekends as kids so that they can pay for these virtual digital skins and avatars and dance moves. Yeah. It goes back again to what we were saying about expression. If you're using this as a proxy for yourself or if you're using it as a way 
to put your own flair into that digital space, then hell yeah, you want to dress it the way that you want to dress it. You want to give it the moves that you want to be able, to, that you wish you could do in real life maybe, or that you actually can do in real life. Or, yes. you know, you want your your representation in that digital space to be the coolest version of you that you could ever imagine. Oh, and um, wow. I mean, my digital avatar is going to be walking around in couture gowns for eternity. That is my goal for her. <laughs> That's so cool. So, Sorry, I love exactly. that idea. <laughs> yeah, she's just going to be wearing couture and walking around. Why not? If I could wear couture and walk around every day in my real life, I would. I cannot, yes. but my digital avatar will be able to. Exactly. Oh, my God. Well, you know what I want to do with my digital avatar? The one I've been making, wow. the cartoony one? What would you like to do? I want to basically put a lot of AI behind him so that he can teach uh, classes. Mm -hmm. And then you could learn my tips and tricks for the things that I already teach. And when I'm not around or not able to answer questions, I would love if you can have my digital avatar teach you classes in like creative nerdy software. And I would love if that thing could take you on you know, virtual journeys and get people engaged in other ways that are you know tangible uh, ways for people to learn and in the different ways that people like to learn. I would love for it to almost be like a really smart chatbot that also had a visual component. So you could see it in front of you through your phone or eventually through glasses. You can talk to it. It has responses that are like coherent and are useful. Uh -huh. And I, yeah, that's, that's what I want to make it do in like the long I think run. That's really smart. And it's something I'm looking for to doing as well. I'd like maybe my avatar to be able to help with styling. Oh, wow. That would be cool. So, yeah, and there are, there are lots of ways that you can implement AI chat logic right now into your avatar. If really? You, I can probably, yeah, I can hook you up with some people. I can help you do that. <laughs> I would um, be very interested <laughs> in that. Highly interested. No yeah. yeah. Um, and then maybe my avatar in my couture gown and your avatar could hang out in some digital space. We'd go to a concert together. That would be so cool. Our avatars could have a dance party, rocking our our coolest outfits. Like literally, this week I'm designing a cyberpunk outfit for my avatar um, mm -hmm. to wear because I just think it would look cool. And it doesn't exist physically, so I'm just gonna make it digitally and get to you know put on the internet and hear what people think about that design. Yeah, I think it's fun. I like the way that you play around with all of your 3D techniques online and put them out there for people to see. I, I think it's really brave. I, I just, I really admire it. I think that a lot of people are afraid to put out things that they're playing around with or mm -hmm. their works in progress. And I, I really do kudos to you for doing that. Thank you. Question for you on that nature. Like, um, I don't think you're very shy with sharing your awesome work online. Um, do you have any advice for folks that are listening to this that are maybe not comfortable yet sharing their work in progress? Any, like, words of wisdom you can give them? I think, so, I go back and forth on this. I don't share a ton of work in progress. Uh, I could probably be better at it. I, I find you an inspiration in that respect. Because I think that it's a double-edged sword depending on what area you work in. So, okay. I think for somebody that works specifically in the 3D space and... Their audience is predominantly people that understand that space, mm -hmm. then I think you should absolutely show your work in progress 
because it shows people how you're get how you're getting there, what the steps are to get there, how you're achieving that final goal, and I think it's really important and it's really helpful. I think when you're dealing and the audience that you have is not necessarily people who understand that, showing certain works in progress are fine because they look a certain way, but other works in progress don't seem to translate because the, the knowledge base is not there. So people who don't understand how anything in 3D works right. will wonder why that thing looks that way and not fully understand that it's not finished yet or that, you know, the layer that you need to add is just one more thing and it's kind of easy. They'll think that, I don't know, I, I've just, I found that depending on what the person that you are putting it out to or you're speaking to, what their knowledge level is when it comes to 3D determines right. how much work in progress uh, I'm willing to or feel comfortable sharing. That's a good so thing me, to know. Yeah, I wasn't yeah, I wasn't sure. I have um, you know, I think my sort of following is a mixture of people from entertainment, from fashion, from I, I do have a decent 3D following, uh, mostly mm -hmm. those of whom are who are creating 3D fashion and working in that space. And um, I think they would understand the more work in progress stuff. Whereas sure. the other people would not. So I think if uh, I were to go that route, I would create a separate account purely doing that and then have, you know, have the people that want to see that and that are really interested in it follow it. And then the other ooh. ones who don't get it not necessarily have to look at something that they're like, oh, I don't really care how that's made. I just want to see what the end product is. That's a really good tip then. Because like, so I like, I like what you're saying. So instead you just make a separate account for that to be the place where work in progress lives rather than having it on your main account um, because of the mixed kind of feed that you have. Like some people are consuming your content for different reasons and you don't want to throw them off when, they, when they're like, wait, is that the final product? Where's that layer that you... Yeah, I mean, for me, that's how I would do it. But I think everyone does things differently and, and different things work for, for different people. So who inspires you? Because and your journey is incredible. It also shows a lot of dedication, but also just like hard work and a lot of learning. And people like yourself usually have folks that inspire them. And I'd be really curious if you felt comfortable sharing a name or two here of someone who's inspired you to be the person that you are doing the work that you do. They say never meet your idols. Oh. And then all of a sudden you meet them and you're like, oh, oh no. maybe I shouldn't have met you because I have always thought you were, you know, this amazing person. So I think mm. I used to idolize people that I didn't know that I had read about or that I had thought had achieved amazing things. Yes. And not to say that, you know, lots of people haven't achieved incredible things and have led incredible lives. Sure. But I think having had that experience... I really realized that the people who inspired me the most were the people who I knew the best, my family, my parents, people who always encouraged me and always, you know, were there to back me up when I had my next crazy plan that they just went, okay, that's what you're doing? Yes, okay, you should, you should go and pursue that. Um, and just, yeah, people who were, who were good people who were always there to support me and allow me the space and the encouragement and the love to kind of follow what I wanted to follow. And I 
achieve what I wanted to achieve. I mean, that's awesome that you got but, yeah. friends and family that inspire you and have supported you for you know all the different types of journeys. You know, that, that's that's an amazing answer. Yeah, I think I think you have a wonderful answer for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think you find out who really believes in you too when mm-hmm. when you're doing something that some people deem cool or they want to be associated with you because you're doing something that's cool in one way or another and then if you decide you want to do something else and you realize some of those people may not necessarily want to have anything to do with you anymore I think it's it's a really great learning experience what kinds of people do you hire in your line of work if someone was like huh I want to work for Christine because everything she's talking about is fascinating what kind of person are you hiring for the kinds of work that you do and need I obviously I look for somebody who who's talented at what they do People who are who have a great work ethic. I think you know. I, I grew up in New York, and I just feel like when you grow up there, it's sort of you either have a good work ethic or you don't survive. So <laughs> um, I think that's been instilled in me from the time I was really young. You have to be willing to work, and not to the point where you're going to give up the rest of your life. I believe in a work-life balance. I want people Mm -hmm. to be able to enjoy their life, enjoy your family, enjoy your kids. But when you're at work, you know, you're, you're actually performing people that you can trust and that you know will have your back. You will have theirs. I think that, that that's something that's, that's been extremely important. And then You never know. I mean, I think that I've been sort of typecast, for lack of a better word, in certain scenarios where I think people didn't trust that I could do the job or they assumed I was one way because of what my previous professions were or the way I looked. Having had experienced that, you know, people are, oh, it's a model. How could she possibly do those other things? I really try and look at the person as a whole and what they can bring to the table and not necessarily look at them and go, oh, well, based off of these two other factors, they definitely can't do this job. So, because I know that it really bothered me when I would sort of come up against that. Mm -hmm. And I would just think, well, if you could just, you know, if you could just look past that thing and actually see <sighs> right. that it's informed me in such a way that it's actually improved this other thing. I think you never know where you're going to find talent. And mm-hmm. it kind of goes back to the very beginning where we found that, you know, the Syrian refugee who had taught himself 3D. You never know where that yes. talent's going to come from. And I think you just have to be open to casting a fairly wide net for it. And I think you know it when you see it or you hear it. Well, it sounds good. That's some great <laughs> advice and tips for folks that are interested. Where are the best place for listeners here to connect with you online? Um, you can connect with me on my Instagram, which is at Mars Rover, M-A-R-Z-R-O-V-E-R. We're in the process of putting together Bod's social media footprint. Ooh. I'm excited for that because um, I went to your website. And I was like, "Wait, I want more stuff." <laughs> <laughs> there really is no, yeah, there is no website really either. We kind of did something we thought was fun and funny. Um, I like but... the lines, the lines that keep curving. It's like it's mesmerizing. It's like whoa, it's kind of retro, but you know, <laughs> not. We, we were entertained by it. Um, so yeah, all of that mm-hmm. stuff will be will be coming in a 
much different way. But yeah, you can you can hit me up at Mars Rover. It Mars sounds like Rover. a really bad AOL name, I know. But <laughs> I think it works. I, Mars Rover. Kind of, it's I kinda of dig it. Yeah. I think it works well. It's like short and I you know, it's memorable. So I think that's gonna work wonderfully. Um yeah. And I'm still trying to come up with like my signature questions for this podcast to wrap it up, but um, I don't know if this question's too big <laughs> to throw at the end, but uh, how do you define reality? Is there such a thing? Is there? I mean, I, I think I could think of this from two different ways, right? Using both parts of my life experience so far. Is it all a simulation? Uh-huh. Or using my sort of my actor side and my Shakespeare training, or is everything just a stage and we are all merely players in it? I don't know. I think it would actually be foolish to try and define reality. I love that answer. Also, I'm a big fan of simulation theory. I think we're in it, and I think the pixel is our atom. You do? Partially, yeah. Every day I'm, I'm, I'm finding more evidence to support it. Do you ever look at any um, quantum mechanics updates in uh, any of those sciences? Yeah. I was reading, I actually just finished reading the book Human 3.0. Oh, I love that book with Mark's Tegmark. Yeah, I literally just finished it today. That's one of my favorite books. Oh my God, um, man. It's fantastic. I mean, yes. I don't think it's a, it's not necessarily an easy beach read. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't suggest it for the beach. But if you're looking to see yeah, what the future of, you know, quantum mm -hmm. physics and what the future of AI and how, what our goals are for AI and how we're going to live together with, with AI are, it, it, was, it was a very fascinating read. I love that book. And if you're into that stuff, oh my God, what, do you have any other book recommendations? Because I'm looking, I'm looking for a couple more um, right now. <laughs> that, that was the one I just finished. I also, I mean, this is not at all similar, but I also was given by a friend of mine, The Obstacle is the Way. Ooh, I have not heard of that one. I'll write this down. The Obstacle is the so, Way? Yeah, The Obstacle is the Way. I forget who the author is. I can look it up for you. Um, but it's basically sort of a modern take on a bunch of... Marcus Aurelius and all other philosophers at, on how to take adversity and turn it into advantage. That's, I mean, so it's, that's it's a, a lot of stoicism, but it's mm -hmm. written in a way that is understandable to the modern ear, I guess. And um, yeah, someone recently gave me that. It's wow. by my bedside. I've been sort of dipping into it. I, I read more than one book at a time. I think it's mm -hmm. some like ADD thing. So I'll read mm -hmm. one and then I, I need to take a break from that one. I'll read a different one. So yeah, The Obstacle is the Way is the one that I've been reading. And I actually, I've really been enjoying it because it basically is letting you know that take any of the obstacles that come in your way and use them to learn, use them to better yourself. Don't let them throw you off the course. Stay the stay the course. If you I'm, yeah, I'm I would, with I would that. Yeah. That one. Thank you so much. No, I, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. I again honored that you asked me to be part of this. And yeah, yeah, if anyone's listening that isn't in the 3D space or the XR space, 
who's just interested, I would say don't be afraid. And if I could do it, then you can totally do it too. I think it's all about your thirst for learning, your interest, your enthusiasm. And as long as you put in the work, you'll, you can definitely get there no matter what you're doing right now. And I think what's so great about it is there's so much blue ocean in this space for you to create within it.